Morning. Morning. We're going to finish. Finish. That's rich. Uh, We're going to finish verses 14 through 18 that were connected to um, 12 and 13 from last week. We're in Philippians 2. Do this, hold fast. Did I put that comma in the right place? Okay. That's, she's my grammar help for that, and I forgot to run that by her. So, uh, yes, all right. Let's, let's read together. Therefore, my, well, not together, let me read, sorry. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or quarreling, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Uh, Heavenly Father, I got to ask that as as I preach this sermon that there be no confusion or misunderstanding that we are not saved because we do not grumble or quarrel amongst ourselves, God. We are saved because we hold fast to the word of life, that we hold fast to Jesus Christ and the work that he has done for us through his death, resurrection, and ascension to the throne of glory, God, which, which Paul just told us prior to this. But Lord, may we not do what, what, what Paul warns the Corinthians, God, that, that we would not test Christ, that we would not grumble against your will and your work, Lord, that we would take these warnings seriously, and that we would continue to the end of our days, Lord, or the return of Christ, that we would hold fast to the gospel of our redemption and our salvation that is done by Christ alone. To your glory we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Point one, be a faithful testimony. Verse 15, Paul says that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. I want to begin today in verse 15 and then make our way back into verse 14. Because here there's a striking resemblance between the phraseology that Paul uses in verse 15 and Moses' song to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 32. And I'll go even a step further to say, not only is there just a striking resemblance, but, but Paul is intentionally using Deuteronomy 32 into relationship to what he says here in verse 15 in this passage. We'll look at part of Deuteronomy 32 for a moment. 
Moses says, give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain under the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and a twisted generation. They are children of God, no longer children of God, blemished, and now a crooked and twisted generation. It's the same thing Paul warns us about, right? Not to be. Now, the, the, the entire song, uh, because Deuteronomy 32, I'm sorry, this is, this is uh, Moses' song, and, and it's longer. It's, it's a bit longer than this, but for time's sake, we just couldn't read it all. That's why I encourage you through email, read through it prior to the sermon. But it should be at least helpful to state that this song, the context of this song, was given to Israel by the Lord through Moses as a testimony against them. Rewind to Deuteronomy 31. Now therefore, the Lord says to Moses, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and have grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. So give them the song to remind them. What's going to happen one day? God, God tells them, look, Israel, my chosen people, right? Once you've grown fat and happy in the land flowing with milk and honey, you're going to eventually become unfaithful toward me, and you're going to break the covenant that we have made at Mount Sinai. And you're going to do it by, instead of worshiping the one true God, you're going to worship false gods and, and, and worthless idols. I think just, just think about Israel, who was set free from Egypt, the Hebrews set free, brought to Mount Sinai to make a covenant with Yahweh. He was their God, and they were his people. They, 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 they thrived as a people when, when they lived according to his ways. And everything they did, they would prosper. No matter if it was conquering nations or having an abundance of everything imaginable, when they were faithful to Yahweh, Israel flourished as a people. It's, it's God's chosen people, Paul says in Romans Theirs was the adoption to sonship, the divine glory, the covenant, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises 
There's where the patriarchs, right? These probably, they were the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah. Through them came the Messiah, who Paul says, is God over all. It's what they had. It's who they were. It's what they were given. And yet, and yet tragically, eventually, they become increasingly evil and unfaithful to Yahweh. Until the time came when they continued and persisted in their spiritual adultery toward him, that a time came when he no longer called them his children. Which meant they went from being called his firstborn son, which they're called in Exodus, to being called a crooked and twisted generation. It's what they're remembered for. It's their, it's their testimony. They, they had the light of the world dwelling among them in their camps, in their temple, in their presence, in their nation. And yet they still chose to live in darkness. They traded everything Paul says they had for gods that aren't gods at all. Now, transitioning into today's passage, we are called the children of God. And, and, and we're given two particular commands in verse 14 of Philippians 2. So that we might shine into the world that's covered in darkness. Right? And therefore, un, unlike Israel, may the word of God never be used as a testimony against us, but rather may, may the word of God always be a living testimony working within us and through us. And finally, hold fast. Let us hold fast to the word of life until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Point two. By this, they'll know your mind. Back into verse 14 and 15. The Apostle Paul says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing or quarreling, arguing, whatever your translation says. Do all things without grumbling or quarreling, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. In verse 14, we're given the application to what Paul previously said in verses 12 and 13, right? Don't forget, this, this passage is connected. That, that in verse 12, Paul said, Therefore, my beloved, therefore, Philippians, therefore, Cornerstone, therefore, church, look, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now what I find is very intriguing about this passage as a whole is that immediately after Paul tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, 
the first imperative, the first command that he gives to work out our salvation with fear and trembling is what? Do it without grumbling. Do all things without grumbling. When, when I was on my second trip here, uh, in, in view of the call, we, we had connection points where throughout the weekend there were different connection points. We would get to know each other. Throughout this sermon, we're going to have different confession points where I confess that I fall very short of this passage. First confession point. These past few weeks, I admittedly have been dreading the fact that I had to prepare a message about complaining. I even confessed to a few people that I've been complaining about having to prepare a message about complaining. I'm grumbling because I have to prepare a message that says don't grumble. Why? Where... Where does my sin truly show up in this? Why am I grumbling? I wasn't grumbling because I had to preach this sermon. I love to preach. I dreaded having to prepare the sermon. Because I knew before I preached this message from the pulpit that I was going to have to take the word of God and meet with God and allow the spirit to preach it to my own heart first before it ever left the pulpit. And I knew exactly what I was going to find if I allowed the Spirit of God to examine my own heart. A grumbler. Now, I, I suspect we all complain, some probably more than others. Maybe we're even known for that. And, and I realize it it may not seem like a big deal. Uh, but, but Paul says this is an offense that we should work out, repent from, with fear and trembling. It, what, what, why? why? Why would God take such offense to something that, that seems as small as just grumbling about our circumstances or situation or what we have to do? Well, the answer is because ultimately when we complain, it's the Lord's work and the Lord's will that we're complaining about. If we go back to verse 13, it is, Paul says, it's God who works in us to will and work for his good pleasure. And, and, and we said last week that means that God has sovereign control over everything that happens in our life. Even, even if you think about Ephesians 2.10, Paul tells Ephesus that God has prepared good works in advance for us. Even our God is sovereign over the good works that we are called to be faithful to. He's sovereign over everything. Think back to chapter 1, verse 29, that Paul says, hey, not only is God sovereign over our salvation, right, but he's... <laughs> Even your suffering is appointed by God. It just means everything. Everything is determined by God. So when we complain about what we 
what we have to do or, or aren't allowed to do or can't do, aren't able to do, or what we have or what we don't have, or how much better life would be if we did have, or just whatever else that, that we don't like regarding our current lot in life. We challenge the wisdom and knowledge of God. Paul says, don't do that. If, if you remember our, our background scripture from uh, 1 Corinthians 10, sorry, 6, Paul tells Corinth, the things in the Old Testament occurred as examples to us. Why? From setting our heart on evil things as Israel did. Do not be idolaters as some were. Verse 9, we should not test Christ as some did and were killed by snakes. Verse 10, and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. Now, what, what Paul is referencing there in, in, in 1 Corinthians 10 about not grumbling and the, destroying, the destroyer or destroying angel is a direct reference to number 16. We're not going to go to number 16 this morning because we can also learn this lesson from Numbers 14 which I still believe correlates to Paul's warning in today's passage from Philippians. If, if you can recall, the Israelites, right, after they were freed from Egypt and made a covenant at Mount Sinai, received the Ten Commandments right, with Moses, and right before they're about to enter Canaan, they sent out spies to see what this land looked like and who lived in the land that God promised them that he would give them. And the spies went, and they give this report, and, and now the, 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 the enemies are, are too large. They're part of the Nephilim. <laughs> There's some homework. And, and, and so they, 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 they rebel. They're, they're reluctant to go into the land that God promised them for the fear of their enemies. And, and so... So, so Numbers 14 says, the people rebel, and that night all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. And then all the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or, or in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and our children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Cornerstone, it, Israel was on the brink, the brink of receiving the promises of God. And yet they wanted to go back to Egypt and become slaves again. Or... It says they'd rather just die in the wilderness than just even attempt to see if God would be faithful to his promise. 
It's, it's just, the proverb says that like, like a dog, they just wanted to return to their own vomit. They, they were settling for dust and mire when, when they were being offered milk and honey. And picked on Israel enough. We got to pick on ourselves for a moment. It's only fair. So I ask, are we any different than them? I hope so. I want to believe so. But I also know, even as Christians, we, we spend much of our lives and time throughout the day searching for something other than Christ to satisfy us. Instead of drinking from a well that never runs dry. Like, just like Israel, we continue to believe that a barren desert can provide life. When we're told repeatedly that the only oasis that is able to sustain us is found in Christ alone. They were freed from Egypt. We were freed from the bondage of sin. Are we seeking to drink from the wellsprings of Christ? Are we living lives trying to get back to Egypt? The application is simple. Drink deeply from the wellsprings of Christ. For he alone has living water. And he tells us in his word that those, those who, who drink from him will never thirst again. Do you believe that? Our lives will demonstrate what we truly believe. I think this is Paul's point. Right? You're not saved by what you do. But what you do comes from what you believe. I think I've gotten way off the track of grumbling, so let me, let me get back to verse 14. Secondly, Paul says, oh, didn't I? Oh, maybe I didn't put that down, sorry. Secondly, Paul says, don't be quarrelsome, right? Do all things without grumbling, and arguing, and disputing, quarreling. At first I thought not being quarrelsome was just isolated from grumbling. And, and, and in some respect it is. But, but now I'm convinced that, that arguing or quarreling is simply a symptom of not getting our way. Something that we would grumble about. And, and it's our own self-centeredness which... which causes us to quarrel among each other because even as Christians, we always believe that we are right. And don't get me wrong. On Halloween, we celebrate Reformation Day and Martin Luther. Right? There's a time to debate and there's a time to take a stand. Sometimes that is the proper course. And, and 
they hated me, they will hate you too, Jesus tells his disciples, and the same goes for us. So we, we should be fully aware that our positions as Christians, submitting to the authority of God and not this world, can be very distasteful to our surrounding culture. It's, it's no surprise that God's designed for, for marriage or procreation, genders, faith, etc., becomes repulsive to a secular world. And, and yet, even to an unbelieving world, we must still speak to our opponents according to the regulations of Christianity. It doesn't matter if we're right. We're still expected to honor Christ in the way that we speak about things. However, I don't think Paul's specifically referring to the content we speak about. He's referring to our character, right? He's, re- he's referring to how we discuss these issues. <laughs> Especially how we discuss these issues with someone who disagrees with us. And Paul says, look, that manner of discussion, our character, is going to be a great reflection and a powerful testimony to an unbelieving world, to a crooked and twisted generation. And yet I still don't think he's referring to how we even conduct ourselves with the world as Christians. It seems more likely from the context of this passage that Paul is speaking about how we conduct ourselves with each other. Because the path we, we choose to take as a church for every local church is, is, is especially in disagreement, in discord or, 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 or disunity, or uniting, whatever path we take is inevitably, inevitably going to be on display in front of our community. Quite frankly, An unbelieving world wants nothing to do with a divided or a chaotic Christianity. And as hesitant as I am to even walk further or bring this up, what has the world seen from the church of Jesus Christ for the last seven to eight years? I would argue for the most part they've seen everything or anything but unity and order in John 13 Jesus says to his disciples I give you a new command love one another as I have loved you so you must love one another By, and, and then here we go by this Everyone will know that you are my disciples. How, Jesus, how will they know if we belong to you? If you love one another. One another. Not out there. In here. We're still called to love out there. But Jesus is talking about in here. And Jesus says, how we treat someone reflects, how we treat each other reflects back to the community if we belong to Jesus or not. And, and, and. This, this statement in John 13 
is right on the heels of Jesus washing his disciples' feet, right? And, and in doing that, the love of Christ we see from, his washing, from washing the disciples' feet, is what, it's humility. He's a servant. He's not self-seeking. And yet the secular mindset of, of self-first has infiltrated and, and intoxicated the church of Jesus Christ so significantly for the last decade at least, that instead of washing one another's feet, we've been convinced that we're entitled to each other's shoes. Loved ones, Christianity, it's, it's not a religion of making demands. Christianity is a daily practice of picking up one's cross and dying to self. Confession point two. I'm just as guilty as the next man. The people I just condemned, I'm in, condemned, I'm in that group. Right? I, I have allowed many things that are not essential to the gospel of Jesus Christ affect the way I speak to other Christians and, and even unjustly judge them for their disagreements. I, too, am guilty. Part of the problem in the last decade. While I cannot speak for God, I hope and pray that he is currently doing a work within every local church that transforms the way that we've been acting for the last decade. And, and like I said, I cannot speak for him, but I, I believe that he is creating unity within his church, something that has not been very visible in the recent past. Or the body of Christ, right? As cornerstone, I mean, goodness, that like little sermonette on the Lord's Supper was, could have just done that and gone home. It was perfect. Cornerstone, we are the body of Christ, a local body of Christ. We're part of the universal church, but right here in Leavenworth, we our cornerstone, and we are a local church that is called to reflect his image to a perishing world that is outside. And if they see nothing but darkness in us, how will they ever believe there is nothing but light in him? Paul says, the word of God says, we must not be known as a people who grumble and quarrel. We must be known as a united people who are humble, charitable, and not self-seeking. True followers of Jesus Christ. And while it's a commitment that needs to be made to the universal church, more specifically, and even so in this passage, Paul says, we must make this commitment to one another in our own church. don't know if you've ever been part of a church that grumbled and quarreled amongst one another, but eventually that can get pretty disastrous and lead to a split and bring shame and reproach on the name of Jesus Christ. Paul says, don't be that. Here's, here's, be united. Don't sow discord. And finally, finish our race in Christ. 
verses 16 through 18. Paul says, holding fast to the word of life. Be without blemish, spotless, innocent. Holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also be glad and rejoice with me. For Paul, there's nothing greater than all the churches he's been to and, and done work in for the, for the Lord. There's nothing greater for him than seeing those Christians finish their race well, holding fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's, as a pastor, elder, that uh, even, what, doesn't John say it in one of his epistles that our joy is complete when your joy is complete in Christ? For Paul, that's true. And it should be true for us. So Paul says, tells him, look, finish your race so that I may be proud I did not labor in vain. But don't misunderstand his labor. The work of Paul was, was not simply just to create churches that did not argue or grumble among one another. Paul's priority and, and main mission was to point people to Jesus Christ and say, hold fast to him. You wake up having a bad day, hold fast to Christ. You've been grumbling and complaining, hold fast to Christ. Embrace the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from our unrighteousness and forgives our sin. You're being persecuted for your faith, hold fast to Christ. You're going to die one day. Therefore, hold fast to Christ. Because one day, the day of Christ that Paul speaks about at Jesus' return, we're not going to be declared innocent on the basis you know, of whether or not we were irritable people that like to argue with one another. God's not going to give us a pass for all other sins because we, we made an effort not to argue. We will only be declared innocent on the sole basis of whether or not we believed all of our sins were forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ and whether or not we held fast to the word of life to the very end. Yet even, even in our effort to hold fast to Christ. We're not saved by that. We're saved because Jesus took our wrath for us on the cross. <laughs> we try to always ask our girls something that they heard in the sermon. And April said that last week to Violet. And she said, do you remember anything Daddy said? And she goes... You said Christ was crucified a lot. <laughs> so Paul said, right? We preach Christ crucified. Because that is the only way we will be saved if we trust that he died for us. And we hold fast to his death and resurrection. And as Paul says, even his ascension 
knowing one day he will return. But Paul, Paul gives us something tangible we can hold on to with this phrase, the word of life. And there was something that that phrase, holding fast to the word of life, that, that I couldn't stop thinking about this past week. And, and what I couldn't stop thinking about is the countless times throughout the years I've heard so many people say that, that they loved their church service or they, they loved going to church because it makes them feel good or, or it even makes them feel good about themselves. And, and, and for unbelievers going to a worship service, I just always chalk that up to thinking that they were, they were basically counting going to church as their own righteousness, as if God would be pleased with them for everything because they, they went to church. Maybe they were. Maybe, maybe they were counting that as, as their righteousness. Checking off a box. But when I thought about what, what Paul says here about holding fast to the word of life, I couldn't help that the main, think that the main reason that even an unbeliever can come to a worship service and leave uplifted and feeling good and feeling good about themselves you just called you just got called a sinner for 45 minutes to an hour and you're leaving good feeling good about yourself how is that possible it's because for an hour to an hour and a half they have just heard through singing prayer and the preaching the only words that are capable of giving them life Jesus said, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And, and for that person who only comes to worship once a week, doesn't trust in Christ, every waking moment of their life, they live on bread alone. But for that one hour on the Lord's day, they have finally tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Why? Because they've heard the words of life. They've heard from the one who is able to give them life, the incarnate word. I just want to close with a reminder from the Gospel of John that there's nowhere else we can go, nowhere else we can direct someone. There's, there's no one else we can hold fast to except for Jesus Christ. Now, I assure you, I did not know that Jordan was going to talk from 1 Corinthians 10 about the Lord's Supper, eating Christ's flesh and drinking his blood today, which would have made sense since we're doing the Lord's Supper. But the passage from John 6, just a little context going into it, Jesus just said, you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. So... When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, right? Who can listen to it? Who can obey it? Who can eat his flesh and drink his blood? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were uh -oh, grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. 
the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless this is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? (laughs) Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. What about us? Would we leave our Lord too, if offered? No, of course not. As Peter said, where else would we go? So then let us hold fast to the word of life. Finish our race in Christ and in Christ alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, Father, you choose who to adopt as sons. And you redeem us and make us sons through the redemption, the death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Through the Son. And by your Spirit, you give us life. You give us the ability to to repent from grumbling, to to repent from quarreling among one another, to, to be conformed into the image of Christ so that we may reflect light in the darkness of this world, Lord. God, I pray that that not only would you do that in all of us, as this church, we would in this upper valley become united as you would have us be as though we are many as one body, God. Because as Jesus said in John 17, and in, in his high priestly prayer, prayed for us to be one. <laughs> he said, by that, by us being one, the others will believe that you sent the Son. God, help us. And help us to finish our race in Jesus Christ well and to finish that race in Jesus Christ alone. Amen.